What's up, guys? This is Greg Ellis. Uh, you might know me as the Laser Shark, and uh, you're listening to Almost Familiar. Welcome back to Almost Familiar, everyone. We're so glad you're here. Thank you for being here. Um, it's kind of fun and exciting for us to return to an interview format after doing uh, passenger logs for every city stop of the Soundship Space System tour. Um, in case you're not familiar, this is the interview format is our typical format for this show, and today's guest um, is not unfamiliar to the show. Uh, we have Greg Ellis. You might know him as the Laser Shark, or you might know him by some of the other work that he does, and if you don't, then you certainly will after you listen to this episode. But when I was looking back through all of the episodes we've done, I realized that our episode with Greg was our fourth episode, and I think today's episode with Greg is our 44th episode. the whole time let us know and thank Props you for being you. here the whole time thank, thank you, you for <laughs> thank you for your patience thank you for bearing with us going back and listening to that episode was kind of funny um there were some audio problems i mean we were still rookies it was our fourth episode we were getting comfortable neither of us were comfortable with podcasting and probably still not that comfortable with ourselves and i think we've come a long way with both of those things. So it's uh, kind of fun to be back here. Uh, I think we're a little bit better in terms of production, certainly in terms of editing. It used to take me days to edit an episode. Oh my God, yeah. But it was fun to kind of have Greg back on the show and just check in again. And so uh, we're excited for today's episode. Yeah, absolutely. For the better part of 15 years, you know, we've become mostly familiar with the laser shark working with pretty lights as he fills up the city skies, illuminating the darkness. But he also has, like you said, worked with a lot of other acts. You know, he's worked with pop acts like Banks. Uh, he worked with 30 Seconds to Mars, where he got to perform an MSG, a lifelong dream of his. Things that came up in the first episode. So this is really catching up, you know, because that first interview, like you said, was almost four years ago. And a lot has changed within the last four years. So we talked with Greg a little bit about that, about his artistic process, about creation, um, a really great conversation. You know, I always love chopping it up with Greg and he was surprisingly unsarcastic for a lot of it, you know, so we get the real inside authentic Greg with like still him being a smart ass, of course, every now and again, but a really, really good convo. Yeah, of course. And we love when our guests kind of let their personalities shine and like we love when they're themselves on this episode because whether you're on the show or whether you're listening we just want you to be comfortable as two people who are chronically uncomfortable we are just here seeking comfort that's right is this our comfort zone yet kind of i think so while we're recording we both have our cozy mood lighting going on in our respective Mm. homes elizabeth rocking some strong pinks right now i got a nice little lavender kind of vibe going but we try to make emotional support hue lights 
That's right. God bless the Hue Lights. Maybe that's our new sponsor. But we like making it cozy here. So, you know, feel free to pull your feet up. Greg tends to chat. He's got a lot to say. And this is a good one just to kick back. Or if you're driving, you know, don't all the way dissociate, but let your mind wander a little bit. (laughs) Um, One thing that we were reflecting on towards the end of the tour was that um, I think in terms of social media, we nearly doubled our followers. Um, We're so grateful for that. So if you're, you know, stumbling into this still for the first time, um, thanks again for being here. Um, And if you're not following us on social media yet, um, please do give us a follow. It just kind of helps with exposure. Um, On Instagram, we're almostfamiliarpod. You can email us at almostfamiliarpodcast at gmail.com. We're pretty shitty at responding on both of those. And I'm so sorry um, for being like that. So um, those are the only two that are worth kind of reaching out to us on. (laughs) Definitely don't hit us up on Facebook because I don't think I've ever checked our Facebook messages. (laughs) Well, without any further ado, let's jump into our episode here with Greg the Laser Shark Ellis. a lot cleaner more organized since last time i was over there i'm off tour (laughs) i'm off tour and i have a plan finally and i have i have big ideas and so i needed to actually get my shit together what big ideas greg what are you working on all right so we'll get a couple of things out of the way first off obviously i'm working on pretty lights we're about to fucking main stage bonnaroo so that yep exciting um we are uh that's that that takes up a good chunk of my time but then on top of that i'm obviously painting i've been doing a lot of that but i have a new concept that i kind of teased yesterday on this i don't know what day this is or it doesn't matter when you're going to listen to this but i teased an idea uh using ai to animate my paintings and um the big kind of thing that i'm kind of cooking up right now is like an audio visual short form like episodic tv show for youtube that would incorporate paint analog visuals ai visuals uh weird audio soundscapes and this whole kind of like I don't want to use the S word because that doesn't belong to me. Um, but that that same kind of concept where uh, just bridging the gap between all the things. Um, so while I'm a part of a 
a pie with Derek and the rest of our team. Uh, I like the idea of having my own pie too. And uh, so I've, I'm starting to find a way to, to make it um, interesting for people instead of me just fucking around all the time. <laughs> yeah, you definitely have your own, everyone has their own flavor that they bring to the pie. Um, that could, And e I feel like each piece of the pie could stand on its own, which is really cool, which makes it really cool to experience as a fan. And just hearing you talk now, like it's, Amazing that it's so like it's multimedia, it's interdisciplinary. It's like it's been so cool because I think, you know, when I first encountered you as it's definitely in relation to your role with Pretty Lights, of course, but like just especially during the pandemic and maybe you were doing it before the pandemic, but um, it seemed that you were talking about it more publicly. Very cool to just see you um, share some of like your multimedia work more just like as an artist and kind of getting to know you outside of that context. Yeah, it, well, so that's that's kind of the the pandemic was an interesting thing because it uh, it provided opportunity and it taketh away at the same time, right? Um, couldn't go do concerts, so I had to do something else. So I started doing those live streams, the modern mythology and other wackiness, and then all the streaming platforms got really pissy about copyright infringement. And so accounts got suspended and I stopped doing it. <laughs> and I haven't really for the last three years had a reason to experiment with the video synth as much and to do that, that kind of that side of things. So a lot of that energy went into, into painting, um, which has been the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Honestly, I fell in love with it pretty much instantly and uh and gotten i mean other people tell me that i've gotten pretty good pretty quickly so i won't i wouldn't say that i'm good yet but that's neither here nor there um but i think that my whole approach to being an artist is to just let the moment guide you so opportunities come opportunities go and instead of you know, sitting in my bedroom crying because I couldn't do this thing the way I thought I could. Just find a new way to do something else. And then eventually, maybe you can come back to that idea in a new way that makes it better, makes it more you, and makes it more um, memorable, hopefully, for better or for worse. You know, there's a great chance that this could be like a fucking, uh, like one of those, like, like uh, what's that? What's that movie that Phil and I used to laugh at all the time with the piranha? Is it just called Piranhas? What's that? Like the knockoff of Jaws thing? It's like, I don't know. It was like a comedy horror movie called... About the Piranhas? Yeah. I think it was just called Piranhas. Like, or, and I know they did a sequel like Piranha 3. Yeah, yeah. That's, beside that's the point. exactly right. So there's a chance, and I'm way open to this, that I put whatever, the, whatever this thing ends up becoming, right? Because it's still very much in its infancy. There's a really good chance that it's so terrible but also very memorable. Then there's a chance it could be cool and it could be good. But all of those things are acceptable result end results to me. And um, as I get older, I've come to this place where it's just like, you know, the there was that little sound bite that Rick Rubin put out about like, you know, don't create for your fans, create for yourself. Uh, and there is like 80% truth to that. 
you do have to keep your fans in mind when you do this stuff because at the end of the day they pay our bills so if you just go out there and fart on stage or do or whatever and just like without this like you know are people going to like this now you can't like you can't burden yourself with it but you have to be mindful of it there's a diff there's a massive difference and there's a massive difference between people who create for the sake of being popular and you know so this this there's a spectrum to it all and i'm definitely drifting more into the create for myself side of things um and more often than not though it does seem that when i create for myself i'm creating for my fans I was going to say, I think it's just a, it's such an interesting thing as an artist, because that's where you do find your fan base, you know, and it's typically people that support whatever your authentic vision is. And it's been the really interesting thing to see with you, because like you kind of have like a brand now, you know, like you really expounded from just being like this PL lighting designer and your work as an artist. Like, I think the thing with artists in general, it's like we're so accustomed to seeing the final product that you forget about everything that it takes to build up to that. Yeah. Like when I went to your studio, uh, like a couple of years, I think it was maybe a year ago or two years ago. I can't remember when that was, but I remember you were like reading a lot about art and I know you've like, it's the, the practice, the gaining of the knowledge. And then you talked about the concept of kind of like being a vessel, I guess you could say, no. where like that creativity comes to you, but then you have that knowledge to be able to kind of do whatever is called upon you at that moment. And I think like a question I have around that is between being like an artist with doing your painting and an LD does that kind of channel feel the same or is it different parts of you that are being channeled in that moment of expression? Well, uh, <laughs> so there's, there's one glaring difference, right? One is in front, in front of thousands of people and one is in front of my dog. So I would be a liar to say that they are exactly the same. But from a from like a creative fulfillment, they're very similar. The experiences are obviously very different. Um, and but that's why I love having both because as a lighting designer, right? You're at least me and and a handful of us. I almost like to consider it like it's a performance, right? Some guys they go out with their time-coded shows and they you know push go or the computer push pushes go for them or whatever and you're not you know you're just kind of babysitting either your idea your own ideas or somebody else's but like for me to go out there and really just without a net follow along with the music um and be open to you know whatever circumstances affect me in that moment uh it's a performance and as the way that I've approached painting definitely takes some of that. It's the mentality or lack thereof, I suppose. Um, so if I'm doing sometimes I, I have a plan going in, like if if I'm working with a with a client and they give me a color scheme or they do, or the song, you know, because so for those who don't know, every painting that I've done is in reference to a song uh, other than the thank you paintings that are coming out they're in reference to you guys but um or the shows in themselves but um it's it's important to be willing to 
take a left turn when you probably should have taken a right turn, but you know that that left turn is probably going to be better, even though it's probably going to also suck for a while. And those are just like the rules of improv, whether it's in jazz or whether it's the Grateful Dead or whether it's, you know, whatever it, the ability to accept less to get to more is this very like fundamental concept of what makes improv and just like being creative really valuable. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a lot of intertwining that goes on both from, for me internally, but also like externally. So like my lighting schemes have, especially in the early days of my painting affected the paintings and now the paintings are starting to affect my lighting schemes. And so there's a cool sort of symbiosis that I didn't even really like consciously think about. It just started happening. I was working on a painting in between like whatever shows I don't remember. Um, and I was using this really, really like stark contrasting color combination that I never really occurred to me before. I couldn't tell you what it is, but I just remember having this thought of like, Oh shit. During the show, I created that combination and I looked up and I was like, oh shit, that's the painting. And I was like, and it was just like, it's one of those like two second little, like just moments in time that you kind of, it happens in a flash and it's gone in a flash. And, but for some reason, like it stuck with me and I was like, okay, this is really cool now. Cause like now I'm seeing how just by expanding my my palette no pun intended artistic you know endeavors um they all help each other and that's been like unbelievably gratifying i'm curious to go back to what you were talking about in, when you were talking about improvisation um in these mediums before um in relation to what you said earlier about like letting the moment guide you so is that what you mean like just like this like intuitive like feeling of improvisation because when I first heard you say let the moment guide you I was like oh I wonder if there was like a specific like experience or something that like inspired him and that's the moment he's referring to or are you just referring to like this like intuitive like it's a thing it's a general yeah so think less do more think less do more that's that's letting the moment guide you mm -hmm. so when you become proficient at your craft whatever it is the theory is or the, you know is that you should be able to not have to think about it as much right you should just be able to do it you know it's like the 10,000 hours you become a master you know kind of thing or whatever you know so like uh here's a great example 10 years ago Maybe, well, maybe longer now, be just because, fuck, I've been doing this for over 20 years. Um, let's just say in the early days of Pretty Lights, if someone tried to have a conversation with me while I was running lights, I would not be able to run lights. Right? It, like, I couldn't, like, split my brain in half, have the conversation and still be able to do lights. So I would literally have to take my hands off the desk, address the situation back at the lights take me a second to kind of get my shit together right and then as i put more time in and as i get more comfortable and doo -doo 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 -doo, now like 
there there are multiple times throughout the night like whether it's you know my assistant andrew or jack you know um and wait wait what is it <laughs> auntie elias <laughs> auntie elias is that the band nickname he's gonna hate me for that but um uh you know like it's no big deal now for me to you know just be doing my thing and be like yo you know and like spit out whatever bullshit listen to whatever bullshit they have to say to me and like nothing you know just keep doing lights so that's like that's a great example of think less do more um just this notion of like one put in the time to be really good at what you do but also be able to like detach yourself from what you're doing and so when you really when those two sort of disparate things become one everything just becomes so much easier and harder at the same time but but easier in the sense of like okay i can manage all of these things simultaneously and it's a when you get to that point that's when all of a sudden now like i'm almost daydreaming half the time like i'll just be floating around i'll have the thought that i had about the lighting scheme or i'll have um i'll notice this one random fan that might be doing some weird thing and i'll lock in on that person you know and i'm looking at the back of people's heads and so it's it's an interesting thing because like you hear about people you know when they look for that one fan or whatever and they like stare into their eyes and like I look at that one fan and I look at their ears. <laughs> you know? I look at the back of their ears and like there are literally times where like you could see somebody you, you can see their ears move when their smile gets bigger. Like I know how big their smile is because their ears kind of open up a little bit, you know, and so like there are those kind of things. And it's just and then it's like, oh, does the air conditioning suck in this building? Yeah, it definitely does. Or 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 so it's just I'm in this constant just not even but not trying to not, not i'm not looking for any of those things i'm just picking them up as i kind of float around and all the meanwhile running all this crazy technology and doing all these wild things and blah 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 but like there's no like conscious like thought being put forth there's no effort in in thinking it's all just happening and so that's like that's all about being in the moment um and just just letting everything kind of just fly by you and let like grabbing onto a branch you know like if you fell out of an airplane without a parachute and you're like all right i'm gonna grab onto this branch and then like oh shit that branch broke i'm gonna try to grab this one and you know and so that's that's kind of the feeling <laughs> i was gonna say it kind of sounds like flow state but then you mentioned jumping out of a plane too. and i was like well maybe not <laughs> i mean it is it is but the, and that's the thing is sometimes Sometimes you're floating and sometimes you're free falling and sometimes the wind is blowing you sideways. And those are all good places to be. In my opinion, I, I, I really, um, I love friction. So like when things are going bad, they usually end up getting really good. Can you give us an example of that? Um, every show from 2015 to 2018. <laughs> I don't know. No, just like I mean, like, all right. Here's a good example, actually. I sprained my foot during the load-in in Atlanta, 
Oof. like really badly to the point where like I couldn't walk for a week after the show. Wow. Well, that's not true, actually, because I had to go do Mr. Beast and then I couldn't walk for a week. Um, so I sprained my foot in Atlanta, went and worked with Mr. Beast for 10 days and then finally went to the hospital and got x-rays to make sure that my foot wasn't broken. And they said that you have a severe sprain in your metatarsal. How have you been on your feet for the last two weeks? <laughs> and uh, so but with that, like I wasn't. I was happy with the Colorado shows, but I didn't, I never got comfortable. Um, so it, it was weird. Those first two weekends were a little, they were overwhelming more than anything else, you know? And then Atlanta came, I'm in my hometown. There's a lot of like outside noise, the family, the friends, the, da, 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 da. and, um, Then I sprained my foot and I could barely walk. And our team, the ladies on our team are such incredible people and they go so far out of their way to take care of all of us. And so like, you know, Whitney and Jaron, uh, those, those two are just top notch. And, uh, you know, they would like make sure that I was icing it and they'd come check in on me and give me Tylenol and all the, you know, all the things. You know, they were momming me up real good. And uh, to the point where I was like, you guys need to leave me the fuck alone because you're driving me crazy. <laughs> and so I was just in such a weird headspace because there was just so much happening. And like my kids hanging out of sound check and like all these. And I felt a million times better about those Atlanta shows than I did about any of the Colorado shows. And I'm not saying it's because of all that, but I'm sure there's some. Uh, th there's a skill that I've developed that when I'm like really under pressure, I kind of have a way of channeling it into positivity, I guess. Um, we always used to joke about like, like Darth Vader, Greg, like when I was in a bad mood before a show, like the dark side makes me stronger. And then like, I would always go out and just like fucking crush the show that night, you know? So um, whether it's like some sort of just like, I don't know, emotional instability or just I need to go see a, a psychiatrist. I don't fucking know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, bad things lead to or bad moments lead to good things. I've, I've always tried. I've always, you know, I and whether or compensation, I don't know. But yeah, I just I try to always channel energy, good or bad, and try to put it out in a more positive way. So going back to the to the idea of a flow state, it was really interesting to hear you talk about because just as a as a fan, I was I almost call myself a casual fan, but I don't think we're casual fans. At this they started point. a fucking podcast about the. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call that casual. So as a fan that maybe doesn't understand like music in like the technical sense, it's like I understand. I I feel like I'm more inclined to be like, oh yes, the musicians definitely get into a state of flow. Um, and so it came as a interesting nugget to hear that like you also get into a flow like within your position on the team like in I'm sure it's like in any show super cool when musicians are improv improvising there seems to always be like a foundation that they will improvise from and then they can segue back to that later after they improvise you following so far yeah. um oh. so I, th I th I'm sorry it's called the song the song yes 
I think that question was a rhetorical question for myself. I was like, am I following my own train of thought so far? Sorry. So I guess my question for you is that um, conceptually, when you um, are maybe like creatively approaching like a project from the start, like how much of a foundation are you going in with that you are improvising from on your end? Well, it's different for everything. So, I mean, with Pretty Lights, uh, time is my friend. You know, I've been working with Derek for 15 years. I know that music better than anybody. Um, so, and I have a relationship with Derek that only comes with time. You know, we under, we have a we have a mutual understanding what we expect from each other most of the time. Um, but, you know, in the performance aspects, there's a comfort level that we have with each other. And so I think the biggest, you know, benefit is just, is time there, right? Where it's just like, okay, I, I can anticipate things better than you know anyone else could or whatever and so like I can get there or maybe sometimes like uh, he can throw a curveball and he knows that he doesn't have to worry about me keeping up with him like I'll, I'll be there with you don't worry about it everything's cool um with other projects there isn't that freedom you know so it just it, it depends uh when I worked with Rhett Daily Bread earlier last year um we were getting to know each other and I was getting to know his music, but at the same time, he gave me full creative freedom to do my thing. And so there were a lot of like smaller moments where I felt I had that same feeling, but there was a lot more of like, there was a lot more trying going on. So, you know, just like, oh, what's the name of this song? Or how does it, how, where's the break in this song or whatever, you know? And just like, you know, anytime you work with somebody new, right? You have to, you have to get through that initial like phase of like figuring stuff out. So like when it comes to, like for musicians, right? You think about, a, you think about any like jam band. Jam bands are an interesting breed because more often than not, they grew up together. They're, they were childhood friends that started a band and got popular or in high school or college or whatever, right? So there's like this, there's this relationship that exists outside of the music and that helps fuel that energy and that improv that happens because it's not just a bunch of guys on stage together. It's a bunch of friends they're all you know playing their part and they're giving and they're taking and everyone's you know having a great time um you know and then there's like but like jazz musicians right they studied an art form of the art form of improvisation is different than improvising so like those guys have a more like fundamental understanding of what improv can be or should be or whatever. I think this is my perception of this. I could be completely talking out of my ass, but this is kind of how I see the world of it all. Um, 
and it there's like there there are distinguishing factors that that un, like a a real musician would be able to like kind of verbalize this better than me so maybe the next time you have someone that actually plays an instrument you can bring this up with them um so there's a uh, let me think. I kind of lost my train of thought there. Talking out of my ass. Um, no. <laughs> so, but it, it's just there's there's different circumstances, and they all they all offer different aspects of how to be creative. And so improv is just a facet of creativity. Um, it's not the end all be all of creativity. It's very important to me. Some other people want none of it. There are projects that I've been on where it's like, this needs to be the exact same way every day or I'm going to chop your fucking head off. I pretty much heard that almost verbatim one day. So, and I don't need to go into who it was, but um, so yeah, improv is just, it's just, it's one little, it's one little piece of the pie, but it's a big piece of our pie or my pie, I should say. <laughs> Definitely. And a follow up question there. Um, when it comes to impro like improvisation and collaboration are like, ex like inextricably, inextricably related. Um, I have noticed um, that throughout your career, um, even with Pretty Lights, you know, there's been a time where you are the only person, at least to my knowledge, you can correct me if I'm wrong, where like you are the main person responsible for like what I am seeing visually. There have been times where you are not the only person that um, is responsible for creating what we are experiencing visually. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, projects can evolve where you are collaborating with more than one person yeah. for the visual experience. Can you talk about what it is like to collaborate with new people on a project that you're familiar with? So, yeah, I mean, here's so, okay, so this is kind of, so do not cut this out. I'm going to say a couple of things. So, first and foremost, this podcast episode will not be going into any deep descriptions of what is happening from a technical standpoint. Um, I'm going to loosely dance around what we're kind of already talking about from a creative standpoint, um, very broad strokes. Uh, what we did as a team to make this project a reality, this return of Pretty Lights, uh, needs to be told by the team. I'm not the guy to just fucking spill the beans on everything. Um, everyone played such an important role in in making this thing happen. Um, and it's going to be really important. It's really important to all of us um, that we as a team really kind of present you guys with this full package of what it took to make the tour happen. Um, so in due time, you know, that will happen when I have no idea, but it'll happen. Um, but yeah, I mean, here's the thing. So as far as like the crew goes, right. So like Eric Mincer, who was responsible for the point cloud stuff that you guys are already aware of, um, him and I have been working together for 10 years. He was part of the PL team pre hiatus. Him and I worked together on a bunch of projects during the hiatus. Eric, Eric is one of my dear friends. Um, so that wasn't a new thing. Uh, Jack very much was. And 
one of the one of the uh, what's Derek said something really interesting to me one day. He was like, I need you to be the dad of this thing. And, uh, or I want you to bring dad vibes. I think that's what he said. <laughs> I want you to bring dad vibes. And I was like, cause I'm, you know, I had a kid a couple of years ago. He'll be two actually next month, which is fucking mind blowing. Uh, happy birthday. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. And, uh, so with Jack, you know, he's 10 plus years younger than, I don't even know how old he is. He's, he's maybe, is he 30 yet? I don't know. I'm I think so. Old. I know he's really close to our age. How old are you guys? 30. 30. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he's 10 years younger than me, right? And, you know, so, like, I just kind of, I took, I don't want to say a hands-off approach with Jack, but I was like, it was a, it was a, let's see what you got approach. And I really just tried to be supportive. I wanted to see what he could bring to the table. Because here's the thing, right? It's like. I got my chance to really like put my shit out there during the episodic tours. Like that was me, right? For those three years that, right? The two years plus the last Red Rocks, like that was, that was the Greg Ellis visual spectacle of chaos, you know, for better or for worse. And, um, it's ironic because for a long time I had this reputation of not being a team player. And that was the furthest thing from the from the truth. The problem was is that there were times where it felt like some people on the team weren't necessarily, you know, carrying their weight or or meeting expectations. And so my frustrations would get the best of me. And um and it you know, it I painted myself in a bad light. And so when the conversations began, that we were building a new team, I was like, let's fucking go. You know, I'm all for it. Um, and I was beyond excited and I was beyond thrilled to have Jack on the team. You know, just knowing the little bits and pieces that I knew of him from, you know, secondhand accounts and social media and such. You know, I'd never actually seen him work live before, but I knew about him and I knew that he, you know, he had something to offer. And so, you know, it was um, it was really great to have a new energy to play off of because his excitement helped get me excited at times when I was, you know, when I was struggling with certain parts of getting the show together. And so, yeah, it it's, you know, whether this is just me being older and a little kinder or whatever, I don't know. But like it. it it it's it was a great experience and um i'm happy beyond belief to have the team that we do have we're happy too <laughs> it's a great team <laughs> i asked elizabeth about this before you hopped on but i don't know if you know if you're aware of what happens in the pretty lights facebook group but they're doing like this little swirl elimination tournament of like their favorite nights of each no, venue throughout the tour you know first i'm sorry to cut you off but you know that i'm working and you know that i'll Slap some fools around every once in a while when they get out of line. So, uh, yeah, I see. I see everything that goes on in that Facebook group. I kind of feel like I, you know, I've got a really good relationship with you guys. I think, and uh, I like to engage when it makes sense for me to engage. Yeah, I like to keep an eye on you guys and make sure that you're not 
you give like cool uncle vibes in the PLF. Exactly. You know, that's like kinda, if that's... you bring the dad vibes to the front of the house. It's the cool uncle vibes. Yeah, that was kinda... definitely knowledgeable. You definitely put motherfuckers in their place. <laughs> and one of my favorite comments of yours came after Chicago Night Two, deeming it officially like one of the top shows ever. And I'm wondering if you can oh. talk about like what it was about that that made you comfortable, or like what made you feel that way. It's just a feeling. Because here's the thing. I couldn't tell you what the fuck songs we played. I couldn't tell you what I did. I couldn't tell you a single detail about that show. The details don't fucking matter. Feeling matters. It's the same way when I go see fish. Like, it's the same thing when I, you know, used to see fucking the breakfast or when I used to work with the breakfast, you know, in the early 2000s. Like, Songs are songs. You've heard them a thousand times. The order, sure, has some influence over how you how you feel it, how you how, or how it affects you. Um, set list structure is important sometimes. Um, it just felt better than the rest. That's the fairest, most honest answer I can give you, and it's. It, the audience. See, that's the thing, right? Is like felt it from the audience before I felt it from stage. The backs of the heads were looking good in Chicago. There was energy. I felt like I was inside a fucking toaster oven, even though it was freezing cold in that building. Like, you, you know, you just, you know, we, you know, we're always kind of like almost to like in a cliche kind of way, always talking about the exchange of energy, right? Whether it's, you know, the love, the energy, uh, the the effort, the the sounds, the lights, all it's all energy, right? It's all one giant exchange of energy. Sometimes there's an imbalance, and sometimes the band gives too much energy, and the audience doesn't give enough back. Sometimes the audience gives too much energy, and the band can't can't accept it. Sometimes I want to smash my head into a wall, whatever, right? And I just I'm detached or. So like, it's this, like, it's it, Chicago night two felt like perfect harmony where everything was in total balance and it all like everything, the room, the visuals, the audience, the band, this thing, that thing, my Waterloo black cherry just tasted better that night. I don't fucking know. <laughs> but Like it just, that was the night. And the last time I felt that way was that Nashville show, whenever that was, 20, 15 or 16, I think. As the guy who's been to every Pretty Light show since 2009, Chicago Night 2 was not, not to say that there weren't eight shows on this tour that were better than Nashville in 2016. But I can tell you that, like, I've never felt the way that I felt during a show the way that I did at those two shows. So, there you go. Yeah, it's an interesting th thing, that feeling, because neither of us were at Chicago, so that was one of the ones that we were streaming, which, like, so fortunate to be able to do that. But from afar, in a living room in Colorado with two other guys who are huge PL nerds, like, felt 
that's there you go see if you could fucking feel it on the stream then you know it's a really good show because here's here's the reality right like i won't do couch tour i did couch tour interesting well because you don't you're missing half the show you're missing all of the other stuff that matters you're missing the environment you're missing the people you're missing the way the sound bounces off the back of the arena like all of those things matter like the dynamics of audio don't translate on those recordings like it's great to be able to hear it in like soundboard quality or whatever but like natural live sound is a completely different experience and so while you can pick up on on aspects of a live performance through a stream like there's just there's, it's apples and oranges right like we're having two completely different experiences and one you know here's the reality i get it we did small venues only so many people could show up and so you know we put a fuck ton of effort into those streams and i'm glad that we did because there was a lot of people that needed to be able to be a part of that that couldn't be so it was really great and I'm not taking away anyone's stream experience. I'm just saying as far as like the concert experience goes, like it's it's a it's an odd thing. And I think I might have even said this at one point. It's an odd thing to pass judgment on a show that you weren't at. For better for like better or worse, right? So like you can't like some dude sitting on his couch listening to the show, that's the best musical performance they may have played that tour. It could have been fucking whatever people are freaking out about today i don't know but like there's so much more that goes into that concert right and so like i'm not saying i'm not like it's just it's a weird thing to me right yeah i get what you're saying and i think specifically like a moment that stands out for me probably is like one of my favorite moments of tour was in san francisco during the finally moving where everybody's singing it and it's a moment, you know, we experience almost every show, it feels like, or every run where Finally Moving gets played. But the way our voices sounded is like reverberating in that tiny room. Like it doesn't translate in the stream. It, but in person, that shit was ripping through my entire core. Yeah. You know, the room, we've talked, I, we probably talked about this at length on the last podcast, how important the room is to a show. We tried really hard to pick the right rooms for this, for this tour, you know? Derek is super, super, super like tuned into that aspect. The room matters. The room matters more than people will ever, ever realize. And whether it's the way the room sounds, whether it's the surrounding areas of the room, you know, like if, if you're outdoors or whatever, like natural beauty versus, you know, are you in a baseball stadium or whatever, right? Like all those things play a role in how that concert is perceived by everyone, crew, band, audience, everyone, right? If I'm under a balcony, that affects my experience. If I'm, you know, freezing cold, that affects my experience. Uh, and then in turn, will more than likely have an effect on how I do my job because I'm so dialed into what is going on around me. So like the room, like, you know, people will go, oh, Greg's like the sixth member of the band. No, fuck that. The room is the sixth member of the band. I'm like the I'm like the dude sitting on the bench cheering everyone on. <laughs> like, straight up. 
the room is so important. It really is. Um, I can't stress that enough. And I wish other designers would have that mentality because I see so often, and this is a big thing that like, I try to stress to the, to like the younger folks who ask for advice. My number one bit of advice as a lighting designer is to be flexible and to work with the room. So like, you know, you could have this beautiful, like meticulously crafted vision of what your stage design should look like, right? But if it doesn't work for the room, it's not going to work. And so you got to be able to give and take, you know? Oh, ceiling's a little lower than we want it to be. Well, fuck it. Let's adjust everything. Let's do this or let's move these things forward or backwards or whatever, right? And so work with the room. Um, and yeah, that's like, like for any LD out there listening to my voice right now, work with the fucking room. Stop trying to be so uppity about your bullshit ideas and just work with the room. <laughs> I think a great example, like when I've actually seen you do that was back during the episodic run in Sandpoint. Uh, if you remember that, like really small room in Idaho, it was like a 400 yeah, We were doing club. arenas and then all of a sudden we're going to play the fucking 600 person room. Like what do you yeah, totally. work with the room? <laughs> and like the way you redesigned the laser cage where like, you know, it used to be on stage, it ran, you know, across the front of stage, but then you fucking put it above the crowd because it was like a two deck room. So we were like underneath the laser cage or you're above it if you're on the second. It was like such a cool little tweak, but it's a really good way that you adjusted to the room. So it's not just like talking bullshit. You're, you're doing it and we oh, appreciate yeah. it. So many times. I mean, my favorite example of that goes way, way back to like ugh, 2010, maybe. We did the lobby of the Oakdale Theater in Wallingford, Connecticut. And it was when I had like these crazy rows of like these little LED lights that moved. They're called 101s. And uh, they were on pipes that like spanned in between the trusses. So like if you go back and you look at like uh, it was either 2010 or 2011. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, but there was no rigging in the lobby. This, the lobby was the original theater and then they built a brand new theater behind it and then they turned I don't it, it, weird place awesome place but weird place anyhow so there were stairs flanking each side of the stage area and we took the pipes of lights and we like mounted them onto the stairs and it was a giant pain in the dick but it was like the coolest thing we did that whole tour. And like everyone was freaking out about how fucking cool it was. And it's like, just working with the room. Can't hang them. Can't put them up in the air. So we're going to put them on the stairs. Cool. Great. But made a bunch more work for myself because I had to reprogram a million different things to make it work. But like working with the room, making the best of whatever that situation is at that moment. So speaking of the room and maybe... um intangible feelings aside what was your favorite room on this tour salt shed cool that place is easy unfucking believable and i'll tell you why one the architecture of the room is incredible i mean those guys got you know i know some of the people who work behind the scenes there and they are sitting on a gold mine as long as they don't fuck it up, they're sitting on a gold mine. And I know they're about to open an outdoor venue too that's like connected to it. And there's, there's going to be a crazy thing going on there. Um, 
I firmly believe in the history of space. Sis. Spaces. Yes. <laughs> um, you can, like, the more people pass through a place, they leave, you know, they leave something behind there. And so, like, granted, it wasn't a venue, but, like, for whatever, 80 years, there were generations of people that were there for 12 hours a day, you know, slaving, putting, making salt, you know, table salt or whatever, the, whatever was going on in there or distributing it or I don't know the details, but you could just like these old, old buildings that have character and they have this essence to them that like, it's the reason like granted it's different now, but like Madison square garden is the greatest rain in the world because of its history and because it's in New York city, but because of its history, um, you know, the municipal auditorium in Nashville history, the salt shed has history, even though it's not music history, there's history there. That is a part of like, that is a, an incredibly important part of American history is that like industrial revolution, industrial age, whatever the, the glory days of America, you know, stuff. And like Chicago was a major, major part of all of that. And so to have a space that, you know, was basically saved from, you know, more than likely, you know, destruction, I would assume if they couldn't figure out what to do with it, I'm sure at some point it would have gotten just torn down and turned into a, you know, a, pay, a place where, you know, really, cool things can happen is the greatest thing in the world to me. I wish more, I wish more promoters and more, you know, just people would take that approach as, you know, these new venues like the mission in the Eastern, they're incredible places too. Don't get me wrong. You know, they've got, you know, they got modern amenities and like, well, for the most part, they like got their shit right. As far as like the, architecture goes and the load in and load out and all that kind of stuff but like to me and now granted like i'm not setting up anything anymore you know so i don't have to deal with the bullshit of like sometimes like these old rooms offer a lot of challenges for my crew and i'm sorry guys but if i had my way every room that we played would have been built before 1950 and I guess talking about like rooms and spaces, you know, I'd love to talk to you about the couple of things you got coming up this next year, which have a lack of a room because they're massive festivals with Electric Force and Bonnaroo. And with Bonnaroo, I'm really curious because you posted this little thing about how you went there for the first time in 03. Please tell us about your first Bonnaroo experience and then what it was like to go back and then what you're thinking about or how excited you are for the next upcoming show you have there. So, all right. So, I mean, here's the reality. I felt like I got a consolation prize in 2003 because I really wanted to go in 2002, but I had to go graduate high school. So, and that was two, the first Bonnaroo was when Trey Band did that legendary performance where he had like 15 people on stage and it was just complete chaos and it was the greatest thing ever. Um, 2003 was a little bit more of an homage to the, the older generation. If I remember correctly, I couldn't even tell you everything that I saw it was it was such a it was such a whirlwind experience being that young and just like you know this is the, before cell phones and before the like even like the i mean the internet was really just becoming like what we know it as now like in the early 2000s mm -hmm. 
So like you did, you weren't overexposed to anything. You know, was Bonner as big back then as it is now? I mean, maybe, maybe not. That's the thing. I couldn't even tell you. I don't know how many people. Sure. There's a fuck ton of people there. That's how many people were there. You could look it up, I'm sure. But like it was massive. Yeah. But I mean, it was grateful. It was the dead with Joan Osborne, which was interesting, to say the least. Um, Allman Brothers, Neil Young and Crazy Horse. These are like the big, like the headliners, right? And then like, I remember, um, golly, what? Um, I saw Mike Gordon and Leo Kaki do it. They did their acoustic thing. And that was interesting because my only experience with acoustic music at that time was like in a coffee shop or whatever. And then like, like straight up, like, like, Lisa Kudrow playing, you know, in the corner of the coffee shop on Friends. Like, that was like, but like at the coffee shop that I worked at, like, we used to do the same kind of thing. Right. And so, like, to see two dudes play in front of thousands and thousands of people playing acoustic guitars, I was like, is that that's possible? Okay. So, that was something that really like stood out to me, you know, to young 19 year old Greg. And then obviously the story about Rack and Todd, because those were friends of mine. We used to do shows with them. And so, I was like, so incredibly like happy for them and i was like on the rail like todd was like right in front of me and he was a ball of nerves because he was playing in front of the biggest crowd he'd ever played in front of and he definitely fell off his keyboard stool or bench or whatever and he definitely felt very embarrassed and every once in a while i like to remind him about it because that's what good friends do that's right (laughs) keep you humble and then uh Let's see. The most memorable thing that I don't actually remember anything about, it's all just one big blur, is Sector 9 playing for what seemed like 12 hours straight. Um, And Mike Gordon sat in with them, and I was on Too Many Mushrooms. And it was interesting, to say the least. I couldn't tell you. I mean, like, I was... I was in a weird place, but it was fun. Are you saying Murph and Gordon were rocking together at the same time? or I, I guess so. Damn. I don't know. I'm mushrooms, man. <laughs> the experience of it is stuck in my mind, but like the details are so long gone. <laughs> so yeah, so but that was like it was if it was such a different time in like being a fan of music. Like we had to get print up directions on MapQuest and look at a road atlas and like you know, if I had to call my mom or whatever to check in with her, I had to go to a payphone. You know, none of this shit existed back then. Or if it did, like it barely existed. You know, maybe one of us had a Nokia phone on them or something, like with little, those little brick things with the snake game on it. And shit. I, I don't even, I couldn't remember. Couldn't tell you. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, it was an experience. But it also like, it reaffirmed it reaffirmed the notion that like I wanted to be in the music business because I saw it on like a grander scale than I had ever seen it before. Because like the festivals before that were all like, I mean, Wes, you're from New York. Like, you know about the, like the fucking podunk back mountain festivals that happened in New York and Massachusetts for like 3000 people. Like that was my experience prior to that. Yeah. You know, the, the worm towns and the strange creeks and the, uh sterling stages and all you know sterling yeah, damn. You know, like all that kind of stuff um yeah here's a, <laughs> there there's probably i mean if if 
if anyone that hears this podcast was at a Grandma Jones spring fling in Afton, New York, hit me up with a DM and let's talk. That's all I'm going to say. So <laughs> that was the great, that was the greatest upstate New York festival of all time. And it was not great, but it was awesome. <laughs> um so can you talk a bit about going back to Bonnaroo once you were in the once you were in the music business with Pretty Lights um I think it was 2011 I'm not sure if that's the first time they played there but I think that was like the I think he might have done a set in 09 right before I started working with him full time Mm -hmm. um so whatever the so I guess it would be 2011 was that when we debuted the tower setup? I believe so. Does that sound right, Wes? I was not there. I'm just thinking like YouTube videos. Like I think that's when I know the truth debuted. Something something like that around that time. Tower setup. Yes, let's say that. So here's the reality of that, right? I was so overwhelmed that there were there wasn't any room for any other feelings. There was no nervousness in that sense. It wasn't like oh my god, I'm at Bonnaroo. It was like. I'm pretty sure that I am about to lose my job after this weekend because this show is not going to work. That was the feeling that I had. There was so many things that we were trying to do that we were just so in over our heads with that my true genuine concern was that this is all going to blow up in our faces. We were too ambitious and I'm going to be looking for a new job next week. That's how I felt. And that weekend was also the day, the weekend that the, the laser shark was born because we didn't fail. And some kid made a cell phone case at Hangout three months or two months earlier. And Derek tried to make me feel better about myself. And what was a joke turned into something that changed my life. So, yeah, I don't, that's all I can tell you about going back to Bonnaroo, at least that time. You know, then the time after that, like, it, we kind of went in there with a little bit of bravado and we knew we were going to go play for 12 hours or whatever the fuck we did. It, too long. <laughs> um, and, like, you know, we just went in there and we were just like, no one could stop us. That was So you, there's the tale of two tapes, right? Bonnaroo A, I thought I was getting fired. Bonnaroo B, I thought no one could hold a candle to us. So that's what happened in three years or four years, whatever it was, right? Um, Now going into this Bonnaroo, I am confident that we're going to put on an amazing show, but I am also at this very same time, very much like in tune with like... Let's make sure that we just do things the right way, if that makes sense, I guess. Like, there's no bravado going into this. There's no, we're going to get them. There's none of that. Like, I'm just putting my head down, doing the work, and just, I just want to be as ready as possible to make that show as good as possible. I have no doubt that it will be. Um, (laughs) One question I have for you is, like, just in your opinion um what does the comeback mean for like the cultural landscape of the scene that we're in honestly i can't speak on that because i'm not a part of the culture in that sense i don't think 
I am I feel so detached from a lot of that stuff mm -hmm. because I'm so busy being a part of the thing that is driving the culture. So it's not really a thing like do you, do you know where I'm coming from? I do. Like, I do. It's interesting. It kind of just seems very obvious to me now that you say it. And I'm almost just like, well, that was a stupid question. Like, how would he know the answer to that? But <laughs> You know, I never really, you know, I don't think about it that way yeah. either necessarily. But just hearing the question, I was like, you know what? I can't really answer that. Yeah. You know, because like, I, I mean, I'm a fan of the music, but like, I'm not a fan yeah right like i'm the guy who's over here for 18 hours a day fucking twiddling knobs and building things and moving things 800 times because i can never figure out where the right place is for anything in this goddamn room and like and then when i go to do the show i come and i see you guys for like 20 minutes but then the rest of the time i'm literally walking 12 miles in a hundred square foot room and so like <laughs> you know like i don't know I, you know, I know that the fans are extremely excited and they're re-energized and it's great to see all of the things that are happening as a byproduct of our return. You know, things like the silly little competition on the Facebook group and like the sticker stuff and like, you know, everyone keeping super wacky detailed oriented set lists where like, I'm like, we play, what are you guys talking about? We didn't play all those songs, did we? <laughs> And like, <laughs> I don't know, you know, so like to see the see the engagement of the fans. That if you want to call that a cultural impact, then. Yes, we are doing good. What is happening to my screen right now? I don't know. You, I don't know what you're doing. Every sometimes when you're talking, like a little thumbs up will come, and I'm just like, "What yeah. the fuck is he doing?" That is. Man, the it's it's, well, you're the it's it's the so laser animated. shark. It's the it's like the fireworks. Like we're at, you know, you have special effects. You're like you. We can't wow, tell what you what guy. we can't tell you about it though. <laughs> I thought that was one of you guys like being like, "Yeah, keep going." <laughs> no. <laughs> Yeah, you just you hit these rambles and the fucking thumbs up comes out of your mouth. I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, it tracks. Yeah. It works. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. All, I see the box back there. I know you're doing some stuff. Turning knobs. Fireworks are on your Zoom. <laughs> That's too fucking funny. That's great. So very fair answer to that question. But I, you know, you still are a fan, like maybe not, certainly maybe not like with the Pretty Lights Project, but like you are a fan of like live music in general. So... Are there any other productions you admire right now? Like maybe specifically that like occurred during the hiatus, like when you weren't working with Pretty Lights, like what is catching your eye right now as like, oh, like this is a really cool production? Well, I mean, the, the easy and obvious answer every time is Chris Carota and Fish and GIF. Can never forget about GIF. Everyone, if you ever go to a Fish show, just scream GIF's name at him. He loves that. No, he doesn't. Please don't do that. I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, no, I mean, Fish is always the guys that kind of like keep us all in check. And they're like, hey, we're still here and we're still the best at this. Don't forget it. <laughs> How um, about someone that has come after you then? Here's a, here's a great example. Um, of now. I don't pay enough attention all of it 
but obviously, you know, New Year's is always such a big kind of concert extravaganza night, you know, and, and a lot of bands will b bring out these, you know, specialized rigs and designs for, for their New Year's shows. And I actually, you know, made it a point to reach out to both of these guys and tell them how great of a job they did. Uh, was uh, Ben Factor from Umphreys McGee and Tiberius from Sector 9. Uh, you know, I've known Tiberius fucking for forever. And, uh, you know, it's good to see him starting to, you know, really develop his own approach to what Sector 9 can be because obviously he had really great to fill. And, you know, it's a hard thing for anyone to try to come after someone. Right. It's 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 nearly an impossible task. You know, we he we talked about it the other day and he's like, you know, I still get reminded about Saxton. And it's like, yeah, well, whatever. You know, you, there's nothing you could do about that. But he is he's got the right mindset to like really. You know, forge forward and, you know, come up with clever and creative new ideas and and think outside the box with the gear with those goofy fake laser. I guess they're real lasers, but. He's gonna love that. <laughs> I mean, listen. Had he not used them, I probably would have used them, and I probably would have regretted it because I don't think that they would work well for how I like to approach things. But he did a really, really nice job of making them his kind of like signature thing for the last few years. And uh, you know, and I gave him the advice that if you feel like it, they've run their course, leave them behind and never think about them again. And so I'll be curious to see what he does this year to see if he does leave them behind or if he does keep using them. Um, you know, you guys love to remind me about certain things that we've done in the past, and I have no problem leaving them there. So <laughs> I think it's interesting that both of those examples you bring up are guys who came in for like very established LDs for like very established musical groups. Yeah. Well, I think you have to try a little harder. And well, I mean, I don't know because like I got really lucky and I got to develop a thing with a guy and I've been with him for a really long time. I'm not coming in and you know, they're two very different circumstances. I had to work my ass off to do what we do. And those guys have to work their ass off to erase what someone else did essentially. And so it's two different things, but they all kind of lead to the same place. And I mean, I don't know if that's just, you know, coincidence, but, those were just the those were the two shows that I that I saw pictures of that I was like, wow. All right. Like great job, guys. Like you really both knocked it out of the park. Now circling back a little bit, talking about CK5, you know, like he's obviously I think one of the goats um as far as LDs go, but that rig in particular that they have and MSG we talked a little bit about earlier before we started recording, but it was my first time being there ever. Yeah. And seeing that rig in that place was probably one of like the most wild visual spectacles I've ever seen just with that rig, the way it's able uh, with those electric pulleys, I guess it is, is what causes it to yeah, kind of called, ribbon and flutter. Or hoist or whatever you, I mean, there's, you know, there's 20 different names. For yeah. Them, but the my question is if we got everyone in PLF in a GoFundMe, how much do we each have to donate so we can get around and mess around with one of those one of these days? What a motorized winch. Yeah, for like have that big kind of rig because I feel like that just like plays very well with what you do stylistically. I mean, like I could just imagine you having a fucking field day on that. Here's the thing, right? Is like there's more to it than just the fact that they can move. Plenty of people are doing shit that makes things move, right? 
it's the intention behind the movement that's important. And so as far as a GoFundMe goes, I don't think we can afford it. <laughs> or the PLR Third. can't afford it anyway. I don't know. We'll see. It's not cheap. Not cheap at all. Um, yeah, I don't assume it is. But the, the the thing that sets them apart more than the technology is the intention behind the technology. And that's something, <clears throat> sorry. And that's something that I've always, you know, taken great pride in as well is like, it may not be obvious, but there's a reason why I pick the things that I pick. And we'll get into that at, at another time. But like intention really, you know, should be the driving force behind the decisions that you make. You know, I don't want to just have that new thing because it's the new thing. It has to do certain things that I I, I deem important. Um, so yeah, so the reason why fish will forever and always be better than everyone else is because of that mindset, their intention and their attention to like how things all coexist is, is on a level that no one else's is in my opinion. Um, and they, they, they think about everything through, but they, they, they set themselves up for success more often than not because of their intentions and you know they have the piggy bank to fund those intentions so that always helps um but yeah you know it's just it, it's 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 a what they do is very clever too how to you know because i know a lot of the ins, ins and outs of how it all works and there's a lot of cleverness so that's another another valuable tool to have is being clever mm-hmm <laughs> Always a good one to back pocket. Yeah. Um, I think another question I have, you briefly brought it up earlier, your involvement with Mr. Beast, who's like one of the biggest YouTubers in the whole world. I was like telling Elizabeth about it, just like the numbers this kid does is crazy. It's like yeah. over 40 billion views with a B. He's so like 23 million subs. How in the hell did that collaboration come to be? And what was that experience like working with him for those 10 days? They cold called me. No shit. No joke. I got a call from one of his producers. He was like, hey, like we want to do this laser thing. We hear you're the guy. And uh, to be totally honest, I had never heard of Mr. Beast. I had to look him up while I was having the conversation with him. Because I'm an old yeah. who doesn't. Oh, I'm the oldest cousin of 15. And they're all like mainly in that younger, annoying kid range. So I've known about Mr. Beast for a minute because they're all obsessed with him. So that was. Yeah, they, you know, they had an idea. I'm trying to see how many views this video has now because I'm a little, I haven't looked in a while. I, it was over 100 million the last time I looked. Let's see. I guess if I just search lasers. Yeah, 136 million. Yeah, how about that, huh? 136 How about that? Not too I shabby. Guess, I don't know if you say that 136 million people, but the fact that my work got viewed that many times is a bit overwhelming honestly um you know because i'm used to performing in front of a crowd so like nothing i've ever done has been made for tv or anything like that i did a couple of award shows but like it was a very small little piece of the award shows and so like you know to work with someone who has that big of an audience 
And, you know, even though, like, it wasn't, like, a public revealed thing or anything like that, like, it's just one of those cool things that happens from time to time where you're just like, all right, you know, I'm doing something right because every once in a while this, like, random thing comes my way and they're like, hey, let's work together. It's like, all right, cool. Like, you got a lot of money and you want to do this? Let's fucking go. It was, I mean, it was torture to make it all happen because they... They're another. They're similar to us in that their their ambitions drive the operation, and sometimes they bite off more than they can chew. And it was fortunate for them, I think, that like that we ended up working together because very quickly I recognized that if anyone else was doing it it would have ended very badly because we were building sets tearing them apart rebuilding them doing this changing that and for me like the process of it all is interesting and is exciting and i'm not married to any of it like i'm not like i can't believe we're not doing it this way like this is the only way like i don't have that mindset so it worked really well because like Oh, you want to change that? Cool. Fuck it. Let's go. Let's see if this is better. Great. Let's go. You know, so that was, it was three weeks of that conversation happening over and over and over and over and over and over again. <laughs> so it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, it was, it was, it was a learning experience in that, like, I didn't know that that world even existed. This whole, like, YouTuber, like, millions of people like i i knew like video game people but like i didn't know that there that this whole thing was even a thing i had no idea and uh so to see that there's a whole generation of people that are creating a new avenue for like entertainment is is pretty interesting to me and and hopefully like you know there will be more opportunities like that because you're not dealing with a studio or sponsors or any of that kind of stuff that usually comes from working in film. Uh, They're self-funded for the most part. And it's just a bunch of guys that have ideas and they want to see how cool they can make those ideas into reality or like how, whatever, you know? So like, yeah, it was great. Well, definitely something I want to make sure that you talk about enough because you brought it up again earlier, but briefly was the thank you series you're working on. So I'm wondering if you could maybe tell us and the listener a little bit more about that, what that's like for you. So. um, Similar to that little announced thing that I had told you guys about earlier, where I like to create exercises for myself. The thank you series was born out of the need to create an exercise for myself. And that exercise being, can I create a series of paintings that while maybe they don't all look the same, but there's a thread that unites them. And it's not just, you know, oh, I picked 12 songs for my favorite artist, or I, you know, picked all the songs off of this album or whatever, right? So one of the one of the things, because like, you know, as I get 
better and get more attention for, for the paintings that I do, you know, there's going to come a time where I'm going to start doing some sort of public showings. And that's kind of, you know, where the thank you series isn't that, but it was an exercise to see where, how, how I felt about not just doing a painting, but, but creating a, a narrative that connects a series of paintings. Um, so this was kind of low hanging fruit to be totally honest, but it was, but it was also important that I kind of like, it was almost like therapy for me because so often, like when these shows happen, one of two things happens. I either hold on to all the bad things that happened or I completely forget about it. Very rarely do I like really try to like sit back and think about the experience. So this allowed me to do that and kind of reflect on like how I was feeling or what, you know, what did I enjoy about that weekend or what didn't I enjoy about that weekend or what even, or even what happened during that weekend, you know? So like, for instance, like the Brooklyn painting is literally a giant fucking blue swath across the painting because the show got flooded out. So like in the most like straightforward sense, like that Brooklyn painting is in reference to the historical rainfall that happened and can't, you know, and caused us to postpone one of the shows. Um, so as I started to conceptualize it, a couple of different things happened. One, the, 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 um, printing company that I work with here in Atlanta, color Chrome, they acquired this new state of the art printer that I believe there's only, there's less than five of them in the country. And, um, it does this like. I got to get, I got to get like the specific details. So that way when I do like all the, like, uh, like the formal release information, I actually do this correctly. So I may be wrong slightly here, but regardless, I believe it uses like a special like resin, um, like substrate to create selective gloss hmm. on the, and so, so this on the print itself, what's that? Like on the print itself, there's just selected areas. It's a little glossier. Cool. So here, hold on one second. I'll show you. Oh, here. There's one right here. Ah. So these are actually on acrylic. The prints are. And so let's see if you can see this. Whoa. I, yeah, I can pop, mm -hmm. pick out some of those spots. Yeah. yeah. That's a fun depth okay, to Yeah. It. So see, yeah. So it gives it a 3D feel and it also plays with the light. Right. So the background is all matte and then there's there's two different levels of gloss and we can select and isolate colors or sections or whatever. So each one's a little different. Um, so they brought the company, the color chrome and Angela, my my favorite person ever. She uh, she was like, you're perfect for this thing. Like, do you want to be one of the first people to use it? And I was like, absolutely. Let's make it happen. So started putting all these things together and then um the amount of the 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 response that i received on each of the paintings got was way more than i ever anticipated and i couldn't i i didn't want to start like a bidding war i one i don't think my paintings are good enough to warrant that 
And I really do try to keep them in like a reasonably priced level. You know, they're getting more expensive, but I'm trying not to be like, I'm not trying to be a, a jerk about it. So, so then I came up with this idea to do a raffle because at the end of the day, right? Like I'm thanking the, I'm thanking the fans for making these shows so incredibly special. And so my mindset was, let's just give everyone a fair chance to get these the original paintings. So if you head over to thephoebuscartel.com, there's a raffle going on. And on top of that, because I do a lot of like the vinyl, uh, uh, you got to call them waffles. Yeah, you got to call them waffles on Facebook. Otherwise, they get taken That's right. down. Which I'm surprised that waffles aren't getting taken down now. But anyway, because you could just if they ever catch on. I know. Um, but you know, the worst thing in the world is to like it's you know it's it's gambling, right? You're just throwing your money at something and hoping you get something in return. So then I was like, well, all this laser shark merch is you know very um, what's the word I'm looking? At? You know, it's it's in demand and the one thing so i'm telling like eight eight different things all at once so just keep up if you can because my mind just goes in a thousand different places when i get into these into these territories because a lot of things happened in the past to kind of get me to where i am now with how this all came together so the way that my I use Squarespace for my website and for sh and for the storefront. And one of the limitations in Squarespace is a, a rigid shipping and handling situation. So like you could set up profiles, but like if you have if you have different types of things that all require different shipping rates, you can't like create different options, but it has this advanced shipping thing, but it doesn't really work. And so I just had, I had set a flat rate of like $10 or whatever for shipping, right? D regardless of what you bought. So you could buy 30 things or you could buy one when it was a flat rate. And because originally the shop was open to sell prints. So a tube to purchase the tube and to ship the tube cost around 10 bucks. And then when I started doing the merchandise, Obviously, these shipping charges are a little bit cheaper. So then I started catching some heat from some people being like, I can't believe you're charging $10 to ship me a fucking hat. And it's like, well, bro, it's more complicated than that. But here's the thing. I had a bunch of stickers made and I was sending those stickers out as like kind of compensation for overcharging on shipping. So that was kind of my way. And I wasn't promoting that. That was like a little surprise. Like, here you go. Like, Sorry, I charged you $10 for shipping. Here's some free stickers. Right. And so then all of a sudden I have a bunch of people being like, where can I get these fucking stickers? And it's like, well, they're kind of like a gift to everyone that buys something. So I wanted to make them more accessible. So I had this idea to do a raffle. I was like, well, shit. Buy some stickers, enter the raffle. We'll just combine everything. So there's, you know, so now everyone has access to the stickers. Everyone has access to the paintings. It's up to you. You can buy one raffle ticket. You can buy 20. I don't, you know, I left it open because I just, you know, 
whether we sell 30 raffle tickets or we sell 300 like yay if we sell 300 thank you right now we're not it's doing okay but but at the end of the day everyone's gambling on the painting but at least they're still getting stickers no matter what right so everyone feels like they at least got something out of the situation and you weren't just throwing money at me for the chance of getting a painting so that's that and then obviously the prints will release after the raffles are done so then that way like if you won the painting you probably don't need the print but maybe you want this cool wacky gloss thing i don't know so um these acrylic gloss prints are going to be pretty limited um and then there's another there's so there's three phases to this whole thing we're in phase one right now which is the first half of the tour denver dylan atlanta philly brooklyn Phase two will be Chicago, uh, the Caverns, uh, San Fran, and NOLA. And then there will be a fifth one that is a surprise. So it'll be series one and series two are both five five paintings. And then the third series will be this sort of like collection of everything. So we're going to kind of spread this out over the next, I don't know, six months, basically leading up into, you know, festival season. But um, it's a it's a good way for me, one, to maintain creativity, two, to kind of, I'll be totally honest, to keep money flowing when I'm not on the road. Because the reality of the situation is I don't get paid that much when I'm not touring. So for me to, like, invest my time in all the creative endeavors that I do, this is you know, helps make that a reality. So yeah, you know, I'm trying to like, trying to make this all interesting while at the same time, you know, functional, right? You know what I mean? Because like, it costs a lot of money to like, keep all this stuff moving. And it costs a lot of time. And it's just it's energy. And it's, and it's awesome. And I love all of it. But it also has to make sense. So here we are selling stickers and raffle tickets and paintings and prints and hats and all the stupid things and just <laughs> trying to keep it interesting. See, you're just like a fan. Wink, wink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Laser Shark merch is everywhere, man. It's like, especially on this last PL tour, I feel like I was as likely to see that as like actual PL gear. And then obviously just living in Denver, you know, I go to any general show, like I'm bound to see at least three oh, to five of them, you know, doesn't matter what it is. Here's the funny part about that, because for years, I shit you not. Well, first off, I've been sitting on these logos since the pandemic. And I just never knew what to do with them. But uh, I also didn't. I wasn't going to use them for merch. The, the original plan was to just use them for like my streams and stuff and just have it be part of like, you know, the branding of like stream stuff. So I had these logos made. Um, shout out to Mike Tallman at noise studios. He's literally fucking taking over the world. <laughs> he works with everyone. He's the best. And, uh, um, you know, Sarah, Sarah does such an amazing job stitching time. We got to give them a show. Totally. Shout out um, Sarah. Yeah, she's, you know, she's been so great to work with and her and I have a lot of fun with these collaborations and, you know, some of the colorways of my ideas and some of them are her ideas. And, you know, we really just tr we just try to, you know, just see where it goes. And um, but the funny thing is, is like the, the very first one that I did when it was like the, the first round of dad hats and the shirts, like 
we were really conservative with it because I honestly I was like this is before Pretty Lights had announced his comeback and like I was just kind of floating in space being a weird dude who does these things with different people and I was like who the fuck's gonna buy a laser shark hat like this like I don't know if this is such a good idea <laughs> and uh so I was like really conservative about it and they sold out like literally in seconds and then I had people being like like I I I wish I saved some of these messages cuz they were just insane. They're like I can't fucking believe they sold out so fast like blah, 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 blah. like why didn't you get more made? Like people got angry with me and I was like holy <laughs> shit y'all are crazy. <laughs> I was like Honestly, I didn't think I would sell the as many as I had made. I think it was 50 of each hat. And I was like, I'd be surprised if I sell 25 of these. That's literally what I thought. And I was like, you know, if I sell, if they, if it takes them a month to sell out, fine, great, whatever. And so then that's when we started doing the timed releases because then I was like, well, everyone has an opportunity, you know? Um, I am beyond like, like blown away by the response that everything gets. Um, I really try to, you know, I'm I. I definitely don't think I'm as cool as the rest of you guys think I am. Let's put it that way. <laughs> like, so, I appreciate all the support that everyone gives me. I really do. It means the world to me. Um. Yeah, I'm just I'm always surprised by all of it because I never like, never thought I'd be like in this position where I could be like, I can sell a hat with my stupid alter ego name on it, like. You know, that started as a joke, like it just and, and, you know, and the funny part is, is like other than that grassroots hat that happened a million years ago, like and that sold out quickly, too. But I didn't think anything. So of true. It. I was just like at that time, especially like I just thought it was just the nature of the scene, because I think at that time, grassroots was just really popular. And so like all their hats were selling out or maybe they weren't. But like I just didn't I didn't put that much stock into it. and. So for 10 years, I was like, eh, whatever, like, you know, and here we are now. And I'm, you know, I, I try to be, uh, I don't want to keep doing the same stuff over and over again. So like eventually we'll move in a different direction with things. Maybe, you know, Sarah and I will always work together just because she's been so great to me. So I'm going to be, you know, loyal to her, you know, but I'll probably work with some other you know, designers or whatever you manufacturers, whatever they are these days, um, and try some weird new things out and we'll see where it goes from there. Um yeah. I can't believe I'm selling fucking hats. <laughs> Multimedia. <laughs> um I think maybe my last question for you um is there were some memorable moments like not related to the music at all from the tour. Um, one is when Derek came down to front of house in San Francisco. And one is when you uh, presented like the crystal on stage in New Orleans. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could kind of share what those experiences uh, were like for you. You know, it's funny because like, we've joked about this stuff for years. A lot of times good ideas stem from jokes because you're like, like, oh, how funny would it be if we did this? And you're like, ha, 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 it'd be so funny. And then you're like, well, wait a second. Maybe it'd be cool. And then all of a sudden you start thinking about it more. And you're like, we really should do this. And we more, you know, 
we we try things more than most other people do. Let's well, let's put it that way. So, you know, Derek's always, you know, one of the things is Derek's always, I've never been able to see my own show. I've never been able to see your show and I've never been able to like experience that, you know? And so he was like, you think it's a good idea? I was like, yeah, I think it's a great idea. And it was, it was surreal to say the least, you know, because after 15 years of, you know, being 120 feet away from him or whatever, to like have him come up and hug me, I was just like, this is actually happening all right you know and and the same thing for me being on stage like that was that was something because for the first time you know like people will turn around when i get the shout out and i get to make eye contact with like four or five people but it's it's very fleeting right so to be able to be up on stage for whatever it was three four minutes i guess maybe i don't know um, and to like actually like be able to scan the crowd and like, you know, and be very nervous. Like I've, I'm not a nervous person. I don't get nervous before a show. I don't get the anxiety or any of that kind of stuff. And I wasn't really like, I mean, I was nervous. I'm going to be honest. I was definitely nervous, but at the same time, I was confident that I could go up there and, and do, you know, cause some people have a hard time talking into a mic, but like. You know, I've got a little bit of practice now with like with the podcast and stuff. And so being able to speak into a microphone is is actually a skill. Not everyone can just do it. But the first time you do it in front of 4000 people, it's a different fucking thing. And so there was that, you know, I kind of hid in the booth for a minute just to kind of get my bearings. And uh, it was I mean, it was one of those things that I'll I'll remember for the rest of my life, you know, in a in a in a lifetime of things that I wish I could remember but I can't that's one that will stay with me and you know it was so special because the inner the, the exchange right is really what makes it special the fact that in the over the course of a month or whatever Derek got to come out front and then I got to go on stage like in a weird way that's kind of a metaphor you know it's not this is you know there's there is no definition, but it was it was a nice kind of like physical, you know, manifestation of of the swirl. You know, it's like here we are now. We're so it's just it was symbolic, and it was special, and it was really yeah. It was. Uh, I doubt that I'll ever be up there again, but I'll I'll always remember that for sure. That was a, it was a cool cool moment for me, and to be able to you know just be out there and see all you guys and. You know, and, and obviously, you know, present that thing to him that, you know, that the birth of the idea came with the, you know, that first prison project that we did back in 2019. So, yeah, it was just, it was, it was great. Yeah, it's a very nice full circle moment. We were really happy to see that for you just because, you know, someone looks at the back of the heads. I'm glad you got the eye contact you deserve just because we're all very appreciative of you. It's been really fun seeing you back in action. One of the, interesting things that I learned when I was younger is you know knowledge and uh and like information as much as you want it sometimes you wish you didn't have it until it's you know like so there's this the element of surprise and like the the, the mystique of things is kind of lost in this era you know with social media and just like there's an overabundance of telling 
and giving and showing. And one of the things that I really, really, really love about working with Derek is that like we can still be mysterious when we need to be. And that makes things a little bit more fun for us. So it it usually ends up, you know, being in your guys' benefit because by us being able to sneaky, sneaky do things, like it usually means that we're up to no good and doing something really crazy and stupid. So, you know, patience, patience and uh, understanding. <laughs> Goes a long way. Yeah. yeah. And we appreciate everything that you have um, shared with us today, like just and about yourself, like your own art, you know, like what you've done with the various projects you've worked on. Like it's, it's fun for us. And I think like, I feel like we've still preserved the mystique because like, just because we have a podcast, it doesn't like, I don't think we're necessarily trying to like pull back the curtain too much because it's, it's fun for us too, you know, but like, it's still, it's also fun for us just to like hear from from you and just uh, like learn about more uh, learn about you more as as a person that's what we're interested in it's just like the people behind the project not necessarily the magic but it's fun to hear about what we can do (laughs) well thank you guys so much i mean you know it's i'm i'm really happy for you guys and proud of you guys that you've been able to keep this thing going all these years because it's not easy to put on a podcast i know firsthand you know uh, I got through 10 episodes before I had to throw in the towel. So, you know, keep up the good work and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon. And that was our little conversation with <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> well, that was our conversation with Greg. Oh, just again, so thankful for him to have come down here and spend some time with us. You know, just being able to listen to whatever he's up to. You know, as always, I'm just such a fan of him as an artist. And as his art continues to evolve, I see the way it impacts everything else that he does. So Greg Ellis fucking around with art benefits all of us and hopefully kind of pick up on his passion. I think it's really hard not to, you know, he's one of those people that when he tells you about what he's working on, you know, he just puts his heart and soul into it. So shout out to you, sir. Couldn't imagine anyone uh, to be a better fit that has worked with the PL project, especially for the whole time as you have. It's cool to see those visions kind of coming together, but also really cool to see Greg's own vision taking flight on its own. Yeah, absolutely. And super cool to kind of hear about his journey with Bonnaroo, like the first time that he went, then going back two times with Pretty Lights um, as we start thinking about what they're going to do this year at Bonnaroo with their two sets. I think it's the first time that Thursday at Bonnaroo has had a headliner and a sunrise set. Um, Did I get that right? You're kind of like looking off your... I need someone to (laughs) fact check me. You You know me. Yeah, yeah, that was an Elizabeth confident fact. I believe the stat <laughs> is that it's the first time that the main stage has been headlined on Thursday. 
Okay. Yes, that's what I. That is what I meant to say. But I was. I was just running with it as if it was a live show. But again, yeah. so confident, I believed it. I need. I need to act that way more often. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not just on the podcast. Stepping out of the comfort zone. <laughs> I've seen you do this off the pod. You're doing it. You're just unaware. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thank you for putting up with my fake news, everyone, and for bearing with us. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. We hope that you check out the first episode with Greg Ellis. I think the two of them together are really, I think they're really like holistic. You know, I'm big into no repeats. You know, I listened to that episode before we talked with him. And like, I think the two are very different. So yeah, you'll get a sense of the two of us is being very different. The pod is being very different. We somehow had the audacity to record like a 25 minute intro. I don't know who the fuck we thought we were, but uh, we know we're not that interesting. (laughs) It's, It's better. It's better. We know that a lot of you've been rocking with us from the beginning. And for that, we are truly, truly thankful. And for all the new listeners, you know, we're really glad you found us. You know, Elizabeth mentioned our socials in the beginning. If you want to give us a follow, give us a holler. We'll definitely try to be better about getting back to y'all. But it's always so nice to hear from you, um, all the res- love and support we received during the tour and like after the tour wrapped up about our pastor logs was was just so fulfilling to both Elizabeth and I. You know, we always talk about how this is just something her and I do just for fun. But the fact that there are, you know, a lot of y'all out there actually checking it out, it means the world. We are very, very grateful and we don't take this responsibility to communicate the news and the happenings of the PL world and the people around it lightly. So Thank you. We are very, very, very appreciative. Yeah, we love when the void shouts back. Um, we're so grateful that you enjoyed the passenger logs, and we really hope that you um, enjoy this format well as we shift into back into interview mode. Um, as we, you know, cross our fingers for more pretty light shows this year, where we can kind of return back to the passenger logs because those were so fun. But yeah, coming up next for um, our interview roster, um, we're looking forward to chatting with TF Mars. Yay, yay! The boy, the co-founder of the All Low Record label out here in Denver, had a really great conversation. Really excited to share this one with y'all. Yeah, so keep your eye out for that in early February. Um, I would say Happy New Year, but um, I recently watched that episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think it's called Happy New Year, where um, one of the plot lines is like criticizing, you know, how long after the new year you can say Happy New Year. So I'm just trying to stay on brand because in our last episode, I think we we were talking about the stop and chat. Yeah. So this this episode's um, Curb Your Enthusiasm lesson is that it is too late to say Happy New Year. So um, I don't know. Hope y'all are doing well so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, much love and no happy new year for me either. But keep drinking water, keep listening to pretty lights, keep taking care of yourselves, keep taking care of each other. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>